Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Democracy Ish. I'm Torre. And I'm Danielle Moody. And we have a special guest with us. Yes, so excited to welcome to Democracy Ish. Friend of mine, uh, Jonathan Metzl, who is also the author of Dying of Whiteness, which apparently we all are now dying of. Yeah, wait, are we are we black and brown people dying of whiteness? Are you saying white people are dying? Because I feel like we're dying of whiteness, <laughs> not that. I'm we're dying of white supremacy, but go ahead, John. Yes. Go ahead, Jonathan. <laughs> Let me tell you, I can jump in on that. No, you know, I, I, I think right now we're all dying of whiteness. I mean, the book that I wrote was really one about the the um, profound negative health effects um, of basically uh, anti-immigrant, anti-government, pro-gun policies in the Midwest and showing how even though those were supposed to be the policies that made white America great again, in fact, they made lifespans kind of harder, sicker, and shorter um, for a variety of people. Certainly, they had profound negative effects for communities of color. That was kind of the idea. But what I found in my research was that they were also shortening lifespans for, for white Americans. And so what, and what I argue in the book is like, this is a wake-up call that, you know, really, we should really quickly understand the importance of, of diversity and of having a more horizontal society. Because if these policies keep going, many more people are going to die. And that was before the pandemic. Unfortunately, now, all the policies that I write about the book are become national platforms by the Trump administration. And so really, we're all under that umbrella right now. And everybody is at risk, just also, you know, in part from the coronavirus, but also because of, of, of these horrific policies that are based in racial resentment that really have, have horrible consequences for everybody. The gun piece really hurts me to my heart because the right would have you believe that the more guns there are in an area... Well, of course, there'll be less crime because the criminals would be afraid, which is not borne out by any actual honest statistics. The more guns in a given area means the more homicide and the more shootings that happen in that area. So, you know, black people have been consistently uh, pro-gun safety at a level mm -hmm. that is higher than white people were, even after Newtown. <laughs> black people live in that area and white people rose up to it and then they went back to their normal level um 
but it, I think that the notion of racial resentment and fear that what do I do when the black intruder comes into my home? I'm going to need a gun. That powers a lot of those attitudes, right? That's that's uh, that's right. Uh, and it's it's been right uh, kind of growingly for decades. I mean, uh, both parts of your question are right. We've known uh, since the 90s that basically the biggest risk factor for getting shot um, is having a gun in your house. Right. Because um, most shootings are not homicides. They're not to use the NRA terminology, you know, gangbangers or carjackers or things like that. Two thirds of gun death is gun suicide and partner violence. Um, so most shooting uh, happens in, in, inside somebody's house. Um, and I think what we've seen over the past decades is this real shift in transformation where the NRA, I think, has been very successful at promoting guns, basically saying, you know, you don't need a gun for hunting. You don't need a gun for whatever. Like what people used to think instead, they said, you know, um, somebody's going to come in your window and steal your big screen TV and these very kind of racialized things. And really, they've sold this as a, as a symbol of white protection and white authority. But the flip side, of course, is that it leads to unprecedented rates of, of, of gun death, really, particularly in, in my book, I showed how there were dramatic rises in gun death, but it wasn't like urban gang violence. That's mm-hmm. been pretty consistent. It's, it's white gun suicide that goes through the roof when, when there are a lot of guns. Mm-hmm. And so, again, here's another example um, where what's being sold as kind of a symbol of white power and white supremacy is also leading to shortened lifespans for, for working class white Americans. You know, one of the things that I also think is really interesting, Jonathan, that you oftentimes talk about and you talk about it in your book and you talk about it in all the conversations that you have um, on TV and on radio is around the psychology of white supremacy. This is something that I find really difficult, especially in the age of COVID to wrap my mind around, which is the fact that we have people whose understanding of liberty and their idea of liberty is really tied in their ability to oppress other people. Mm. We see that white folks, right? And I'm going to generalize and I don't care. Um, We see that white folks who are protesting are protesting their ability to oppress other people. They are deciding who is, yes, who should serve them, who is expendable, who should be cutting their hair, doing their nails, um, putting their lives at risk for their comfort. And I want to talk a bit about that because, again, it's this idea that I think that they believe that their whiteness is not only currency, but it's also Teflon, right? That like this virus, while it is killing um, our community, the black and brown people, um, right now, that it's something that is going to somehow just go around them, go around their whiteness. Can you speak to that? Well, I think there are two ways to, to answer that question. And I'll maybe just touch on, on the both. The first is the more obvious way for all of us right now, which is that in this COVID moment, um, you know, there are a, a segment of, of people who are who are out there protesting, um, you know, white uh, white protesters are rushing the um, you know town gates in places like Madison, Wisconsin, and and Detroit, Michigan, um, and really you know AR-15 carrying, often not mask wearing uh, protesters, 
And in a way, you know, I keep thinking when I see those protests really about about some of the more extreme positions that I that I encountered in my book, which is basically the minute you code something as a black and brown problem, all of a sudden there's this kind of understanding of it's happening to them. It's not happening to us. And this idea that kind of the white body, because it has an AR-15, is kind of invincible and, and, you know, unsusceptible. And so in a particular way, there are these extreme examples of this idea that basically the white body is going to be protective against the coronavirus. And of course, we're seeing now the, how dangerous that attitude is, because not only is everyone equally susceptible to the coronavirus, but a lot of times when people are out there protesting, they'll catch it, pass it around, and then go back and pass it on to you know workers or their Uber driver or the person who delivers their food or things like that. So this is a real network thing where it's, it's, it's a network of dying of whiteness in a particular way. Um, so, so I'm sorry, go ahead. So there's a new poll, Quinnipiac, that has Biden up 50 to 39. But if you dive inside that, we are almost divided equally as a nation. Among white men, Trump is winning 56 to 35. And among everyone else, Biden is winning 57 to 31. Right. Those numbers are pretty much within the margin of error. Um White men continue to this day, despite 100,000 dead, 35 million unemployed, massive mm. coronavirus failure. Mm. White men are supporting Trump at 20 points and above. What's the matter with white what men? Is Why wrong are they with sticking them, with this guy? <laughs> what is wrong? Let me ask you guys a question. What what would those numbers look like if Trump at the beginning of this would have done what most responsible leaders would have said, which is to say, we're equally susceptible. This is a new pathogen. We're all made vulnerable by the fact that we're, we're all at risk in ways that we didn't know. We're all connected in ways we didn't know. So what we're going to do is we're going to create a more horizontal society where we take care of everybody because these disparities are wake-up calls for us. I wonder what, what his support would have been if he would have addressed it that way, I would bet that it would be lower, actually, even though that would have been a more effective public health response. Um, because really what he's playing into is this idea that basically it's it's kind of, he's he's not giving you life, he's not giving you longevity, but he's giving you the, this particular wage of whiteness, right? And so mm. um, in a way, um, you know, he's still playing this card. And there have been multiple, multiple examples over this over this pandemic, this horrible pandemic, where he could have made a different choice. The one that comes to my mind is the minute this stuff started hitting red states, why didn't he immediately expand Medicaid in red states? I mean, that would have been easy. It's already on the books. It would have saved people's lives. It would have saved the economy much better. Um, but would it have made him money, Jonathan? I mean, we all know that he is deeply invested in hydrochloroquine when he should be invested in hydrocut, you know, whatever the weight loss thing is. Um, Hydroxycut. Hydroxycut. That's what it is. Can Maybe you believe, that's like, what he's confusing. I mean, like, he says he took <laughs> it. We don't believe him, no. even though we kind of hope that he did. Yeah. It's sort of a weird sort of like inside the inside out or through the apple. I mean, like through the looking glass of like he's saying he's taking this thing, but we're sure he's not. But he says he I don't even know what to do with this information. Well, you know, it's it's just, you know, when I was doing my research and after my book came out, people kept asking me, so when are people going to wake up? You know, when are they going to wake up? And the assumption is like, what's the what's the number of gun deaths? What's the number of uninsured? What's the number of schools that are going to have to close for people to wake up? And now partially that's a, 
a challenge, right? If you want to win an election, you have to re, you have to frame a counter message. But it's also because this is coded in such historically and current racialized language. It's not like there's some number that's going to wake people up and they're going to change size. That's not what's going to happen. Instead, I think what we're seeing now is the kind of the entrenchment of these of these very dangerous ideologies. You know, is it that you know because. Here's the thing. I get very upset with uh, white conservative men. And I mean, that's like a youth, like that's a euphemism. I can't stand them. Um, but the, 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 what upsets me is this belief that they are, we owe them something. Right. Mm -hmm. Like they are owed something. Everyone else needs to we need to create policies where we move everyone else out of the way. Right. Donald Trump, his whole premise was about bringing America back, making America great again to the point where women were staying home. So we're rolling back all of these abortion protections and all of these abortion rights so that women have to stay home. Right. We don't treat we don't pay them protections. We don't pay them equally in the workforce. So if you are forced into family planning, then you have to stay home. Right. Because it becomes more um, economically um, it makes more economic sense. I just don't understand how they profess to be great, but they need everyone else to be sidelined in order for them to actually be great. Do you Mm. know what I'm saying? Like it, it is it's showing up to, you know, to play a football game, but everybody else, like, has to be sidelined. They have to have one arm tied behind their back and, like, one leg tied to the other, but, like, (laughs) you're free, but you're like, look at me, I'm the champion. Like, that's how I feel that white men are. It's like, it's like, you literally, you need everyone else to be disadvantaged in some way. Whiteness is powerful and fragile. (laughs) But how is that? How can you be both? Well, it's also hierarchical, right? I mean, and let me just be clear, and I make this very clear every time I talk about the book. I'm not talking about all white people. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not talking about white as a biological category. What I'm talking right. about is whiteness as a as a category of hierarchy. In other words, this idea that your white that your white comfort is defined only if there are other people beneath you. Um, you know, mm-hmm. Du Bois was writing after in the period after Reconstruction about white men who had nothing. The only thing they were being sold by capitalism was um, that they were better than than um, freed uh, black slaves who had even less. Um, right. So they never actually had to give black give white men anything except to say you're better off than black men. And so I think this idea of a hierarchy, uh, this yeah. idea that basically you don't have anything except for this privilege, has been kind of um, almost epigenetically transmitted <laughs> over time uh, to the point where it leads to these. Incredibly, incredibly illogical from the outside kind of decisions, unless you understand how how structural racism works. Um, but the the other sad part is like think about how much better we'd all be if if there if this hierarchy wasn't the thing our country was holding on to. I mean, if we had equal access to healthcare and to food. I mean, I can give you countless historical examples where when societies go from being overly hierarchical to overly horizontal, it actually works out better for everybody. And so right now is an urgent wake up call, like let's get rid of this old baggage. But unfortunately this old baggage is, you know, weighing down the, the ship. You know, Danielle, I, I, I get of course very triggered and upset about white conservative men, but uh, even at least they are promoting or believing in espousing a philosophy that is built for and works for them. The people who really get my goat, who really piss me off, 
are black conservatives who are believing in an ideology that does not that is not constructed to uplift them or people right. like them. So you're believing you're there's stock it's Stockholm syndrome. You're believing in your captors philosophy and what will make life better for them. It doesn't actually make it might it may like make life better specifically for you when can't dance Owens is sort of like elevated to another position that she would not have if she was a liberal, but it, the the ideology that she espouses does nothing for her. Um John, one thing I'm interested in, I'm curious about is is like private white spaces, like when there are no black and brown people around, be it family or friends or what have you, and racist things or even what you might consider borderline racist things are said. And some of the social science that I've seen says that white people tend to not police the idea. They don't say, hey, you shouldn't Mm -hmm. think that. They say, to each other, you shouldn't, they either say nothing or they say, you shouldn't say that. Like you should not verbalize racist ideas. Um, not not you racist. shouldn't believe that. Not, not that that's not true, but you just shouldn't say it. Um, is that your experience? Well, you know, again, I, 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 I hold off on, um, you know, so in other words, in, in my book, right, I'm a white American, obviously I'm, I live in Tennessee um, for the most part. Um, and I'm going around doing research um, with other white Americans. Like I'm a Midwesterner. I was talking to other Midwesterners and I heard some pretty bad things uh, in, in my research. Um, and, and it's hard, you know, for, I'm just thinking about myself as a researcher at that moment. Um, what would it have meant? I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't, I challenged everything. I told people what my book was about. I told them the premise, the title, things like that. Um, but, but I would say that I did feel like probably people opened up to me more because I was kind of in the in-group in, in a particular way. And I, sure. and I certainly think that what I heard, I mean, you can you'd see in the book was a lot of, you know, I think pretty honest thoughts and reflections. And part of that was some very, very racist stuff. Um, but the other part was a lot of people who were just honestly opening up about how they were struggling. And this ideology was like the only thing that they had they had to hold on to um, because they were really, really falling through through the safety net. So certainly I, I wrote the book to expose the kinds of things that are said in privacy like that. But I also wrote the book. Um, I, I don't I don't want to say empathy because I think it's it's a kind of assumption. But I will say that. I met a lot of people who really were struggling and these ideologies, I mean, just think about it. The more desperate people get sometimes, the more ideological they get. Mm. And so I grow to understand at least how the rhetoric of Trump made sense in a particular way, because without that, they, I mean, the irony, of course, is Trump's policies were making their lives much, much worse. But do they realize that, Jonathan? Like, that's that's the thing that troubles me, right, is that. As Democrats, we believe that we have the better policies, we have the better, we don't definitely don't have the better story because we can't actually um, verbalize that in any short capsule way that people can bite onto in the way that they do fear and hatred. But do they understand, do you think, or let me say this, based on the people that you've spoken with for your research, for the book Dying of Whiteness, Do you think that this moment, as they're standing in food pantry lines that are wrapping around for hours in their town, as they have lost their jobs and their loved ones have lost their jobs, will they start to then look at Donald Trump as the person that is the causation of this? Or are they just going to double down on what he's doing and what the Republican Party is doing, which is frankly still trying to blame the black guy? 
right? Like, mm. you know, which is which is what we are seeing unfold all over the place. You know, it, it's not like for the most part, people are like blind zombies who are who are just running into a meat grinder or something like that. You know, <laughs> I mean, people were actually making informed decisions based on the ideologies that they had in front of them. And the reason I say that is because, um, you know, I do think that if they're now again, I it, it, the the problem is you don't want to go there, right? In other words, like it's not like I'm in any way advocating um, hierarchy, supremacy, I you know all these kind of things. But I will say that there are recent examples from before the pandemic, where when Democrats prevent presented a compelling counter narrative that actually was true to um, democratic ideals, but also met people's material conditions. And I'm thinking, for example, of the gubernatorial race in Kentucky um, and the gubernatorial race in Louisiana. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Bipartisan support. Uh, it wasn't a slogan-y kind of thing, but it was basically like, I'm going to get your health care back. And, you know, things like really simple kind of things that weren't based on that. And so I do think that there are examples, not of extreme positions, but of centrist positions that kind of take people where they're at and at the same time don't espouse, um, you know, horrible stuff. And so I do think that part of this is not just a you dummies kind of story. It's also kind of a challenge for Democrats to think about how can you, you know, again, not everything has to be appealing toward toward white people. I think that's gotten us in trouble in the past. Um, but I would say that but that people are making decisions that I think are important to at least pay attention to. And certainly the economy would be another big one, big one right now. And so you know, again, I, I just I don't want to say that everybody's so far gone that they're that they're just like, you know, the walking dead or, or something like that. Um, you know, I, I do think there's an openness if you can present a counter narrative to, to bring people over. I wonder if there's a core philosophy that you see undergirding some of the racist comments you see you, you hear. Is it that they are intellectually lesser than us they are less deserving than us they don't work as hard as us like like is there a core philosophy undergirding the comments that we hear well there i'll give you if, if i have time two examples because i think there's an extreme and a, and a model the extreme example the extreme is just this has been going on for 50 years. So in the South where I was doing my interviews, every time there was any kind of pretension of change to the social order, um, desegregation, um, you know, any kind of attempt at universal health care, any kind of attempt to um, create better schools for everyone. It's kind of an old playbook that just keeps getting kind of dusted off every five minutes or something. And so part of it is this kind of fear of change and this idea that I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose privilege or I'm going to lose this little thing that I'm holding on to. And it's, it's just, it's interesting because if you look at a lot of the stuff Trump says, these, these, um, these silent whistles are, you know, you can just look back 10, 20, 30 years and it's almost exactly the same. There's a Steve Miller every, (laughs) every era and stuff like that. And so part of it is there's a long tradition of this language being, being, being used, I, I would say that. Um, and then I think the other part to, to, to just repeat is that, um, you know, it's like, I, I think a lot of times people also feel desperate and they feel like there's no other alternative. And so I think that in a way they, they feel like this is kind of my, my only shot, right? And I say that because I did meet a lot of like libertarian folks and things like that who really didn't like Trump very much, but they just didn't feel like there was any other any other way to go. I just wonder, you know, I wonder because one of the things that annoys that 
annoys me about Biden in particular and just centrist Democrats are, you know, this push to always want to bring people back to the tent, right? Like we need to reach across the aisle and we need to talk to people that we disagree with and we need to bring these people back into the tent. And frankly, I don't fucking want them, right? Like I <laughs> I don't want the racists to return to the tent. Like I'm good. Like you let me know what you think about me, what you think about this universality of like, we're all humans, right? We should all have healthcare. We should all have access to education. We should all have access to clean water. But their belief in this scarcity model, right? To me, that is actually like what is fundamental to white supremacy is the belief in, is is the scarcity model. There is not enough, right? And so if there is not enough, then I have to hoard and take away from you as much as I possibly can because I am more deserving. And the idea about democracy, in my opinion, in America, at least the bullshit that we have been sold up until this point, now that we see that it's a farce, is is the idea that there is more than enough, right? There is more than enough. There are just certain people that are greedy, right? But that that there is there is the the ideology of abundance. And so I don't know how you reconcile those things. But what frustrates me about a Biden is that he keeps trying to go over to those people and say, oh, come back, come back. And I'm like, no, I don't want them in my tent. I mean, you know, I, I of course, agree with you. I, I, when you were talking, I was thinking about the scarcity. It's not just scarcity of materials. Right. And the reason I say that is because when I was doing interviews about the Affordable Care Act, for example, and I was, do, we were doing interviews with two groups of people. We did groups of, we did interviews with African-American men who were quite medically ill, um, who talked to us about the Affordable Care Act. And they were like, this is going to be great for everybody. You know, if the more people who have health insurance, the better it is for our country. Let's get everybody under this tent, not just black men. Um, and when we were interviewing white men, really, really sick white men, the kind of stuff we would hear is, I don't want to be in a system. Here's a quote from the book. I don't want to be in a system that's going to benefit Mexicans and welfare queens. This idea that basically there's only so much healthcare to go around and I don't want to be in a system with anybody else. And so if you think about how healthcare works, right, you actually want the most people in the system because one guy is healthy and the other guy needs a kidney transplant. You want to have shared risk and pooled risk and shared resources. So you actually want the most people in your healthcare network. That's how universal healthcare works. Um, and so this idea of just wanting to create a system for us, it's not just about resources, right? It's not just about material things. It's also this idea that if we're on a horizontal plane, it'll be a kind of loss of privilege and I'll just be on the same level uh, with everyone else. And so in a way, it's an ideology that is not linked to any material reason. And for me, it underlies not just the pandemic, but for example, you know, the crazy responses to the Affordable Care Act and to budget cuts in schools and, you know, on down the road. I just, I, it annoys the hell out of me. It, it really does. I, I I don't know what I don't because the thing is, is that I don't know what to do with people like that. I don't know what to do with people who literally want to cut off their nose to spite their face because they don't want other people to like I am in a hospital bed dying. And my way of not dying is being able to pro is that everybody needs to get the same care and needs to receive health care. And you saying I'd rather die than give an undocumented person health care. I'd rather die then give this this perceived welfare queen anything, even though we know that white people are the ones that suck most from the government. Like, I just, I don't know what to do with that. 
I don't know how to rationalize with that. And frankly, I don't have any fucking empathy. So I don't know how to <laughs> empathize. I don't know where to go. Well, again, you know, I, I again, I just want to be clear. It's not, I'm not talking about everybody. I'm talking about the narrative strains that I feel like Trump and the GOP are appealing to, um, which is basically, and you know, and I, when I try to think, when I try to put myself in the shoes of the people that I spoke with, um, you know, I try to think like, what's another time where I thought like I had some privilege or I had some thing. I mean, I've got, of course I have privilege walking down the street, but I mean, you know, where something was going to be taken away from me, you know, and it's funny, but like, I think about it, like when I'm, I, I used to fly a lot, I'm not getting back on an airplane anytime soon. Um, but, uh, but, you know, but like when, when you'd be on and you thought you were going to like get some upgrade from Delta or get whatever. And then they're like, nope, sorry. And it's like, no, wait, I have elite member status or something like that. And people go crazy at, at the airline because it's like, oh, I thought I had this particular privilege and now you're taking away from me, even though it's totally fake and manufactured and a marketing tool and just getting you to spend more money. But I think there are multiple times where, you know, I just kept thinking like, is this, is that what it feels like you're hanging on and then somebody's taking away a privilege you're telling you. And I, I have to say, whether you agree with that or not, it's a very, very powerful marketing tool, right? To say, mm-hmm. I'm going to come screw you. They're going to take away something that you've earned and is deserved for you. Like it's really hard to counter that. But I, I really think that that's continually what's being played to is this idea that you've achieved some kind of status. Um, and that's going to get taken away from you if you don't block these everybody else and stuff like that. And it's just, it's hard to create a counter narrative to that. That's actually exactly everything that I hate about airports. <laughs> like, because it is, it really is. It is, it, it's the most classist place other than a, other than a hospital airports to me are the most, are, are a place where you just see privilege, right? Like, Oh, not you the first class person and no, not you first class person, the first class person that has an emerald pass can get on and sit in seat one. Right. Like I know the theta scotch pole, I believe was talked about uh, line skippers, right. In this sense of the problem is people who are skipping the line, people who are, you know, getting something above or before they really should. And, I work hard and wait my turn and don't ask for favors, which is bullshit. We all get something from the government, especially red staters get more from the government than their states pay in. Um, But Mm -hmm. I work hard and I don't get anything for free and they get affirmative action or what have you. They get these freebies that are based on things that other people did long ago. The notion that slavery continues to have a tangible impact on modern America is completely foreign to a lot of folks. Well, if you if you read Du Bois after, writing about the period after Reconstruction, that's his argument as well. Basically, the idea is, look at this idiotic thing we just fought a war over, this idea of race. So clearly it's a load of crap, um, but it has very real material consequences. But if ever we're going to see, you know, we just killed like a huge percentage of our country. Um, over this like this this false notion of hierarchy, if ever there was a time to throw this out, it would be right now because look at all the people who died, but it turned out that the opposite was the effect that made people more susceptible to anxieties about about hierarchy. Yeah. I hate it. I hate all of it. And I my 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 last question, Jonathan, though, um, because I I, you know, is what do you see, if anything, shifting? 
over the next six months. We have we have roughly six months, 160, I think it is six days until election, right? We already are at 33 plus million people that are unemployed. We know that while the states are opening, right, these red states are opening, we know that the virus is not um, going to stay away from white people, right, as, as much as they believe that it's going to happen. Um, does anything shift from these folks or, or will we all continue to die of whiteness, essentially? Well, again, I, I mean, one of the stronger lessons from, from my research for me was that everybody was not monolithic. I mean, certainly there were people who were like really far gone, but I, I met a lot of people who were just really honestly trying to live their lives and were scared. Um, and I'm not saying that in any way to, to say that we should have empathy for for um, horrible positions, but I would say that, I mean, if two things that we've learned in the last couple of years and certainly in the last couple of months, number one is the importance of winning elections. The importance of who's in charge for implementing things is very, very important um, for dictating all of these things we care about. And so, um, and I would also say that, I mean, again, some people I met were espousing horrible things and some people, I didn't agree with them, but they cared very, very deeply about the Second Amendment. That was their main thing. Or they cared about abortion or something like that. Like they, it wasn't like, I mean, which has, as I say, all the in the book, all these ties to all these other racialized positions. Um, but but they were just kind of trying to make decisions um, based on you know the stuff that they that they cared about. And 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 so I really hope that over the next six months, even though it's this pandemic catastrophe and genocide right now. Um, that we that we look back and, and I think study some of the more recent elections where where people have been able to cobble together centrist coalitions in ways that I mean look at Louisiana for example right now Louisiana a, a Democrat um, won the gubernatorial election mm-hmm. and Louisiana's doing a great job because he's been able to pull together Republicans and Democrats in a kind of common purpose largely not totally um, against the coronavirus and so I do think that centrism is not selling out your ideals it's not having to, you know, get in bed with somebody who you disagree with on, on, on any of these huge issues. But it is a mode of governance that I think is harder to think about when we're all in our kind of echo chambers where we're all just tweeting with people we, you know, we know and agree about and stuff like that. And so I, I think partially, you know, we're going to have to look back and see how, how have these coalitions worked in the past in ways that created outcomes that, that, that are more beneficial. Indeed. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for your time and your honesty and your generosity. We really appreciate it. <laughs> and um, the book, folks, just before we go, is Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland and, frankly, Addendum All of Us uh, by our friend Jonathan Metzel. Thank you so much for listening to Democracy-ish. I'm Torre. And I'm Danielle Moody. And we will be back next week if there is a country, (laughs) which is less and less and less funny. Everyone pray about it. Pray about it. All right. Thanks, y'all. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, 
immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 